Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. It's a great uh, opportunity here to share with you this morning. I want to share, first of all, a story. When I was 22 years old, I led my first mission uh, down in Cornwall. I had about 70 young people from around the UK come down to Cornwall with me for a week of mission. It was in Newquay, the party capital, really, of, of England in many ways. And during that week, I hosted an event in a nightclub. We were highlight this nightclub, and I um, organised some DJs and some music and a whole variety of things. And the night came for this club event. We'd been praying lots beforehand. And the club event began, and it was packed full of people, hundreds of people in this club. The bar was open. There was a DJ. There was a breakdance battle. And then at midnight, I got up on the stage to preach a five-minute gospel message. Now, preaching in that kind of a context is quite a kind of random, strange, and scary thing to do. I got up on stage, about to try and share a few words. The music got turned off. Everyone faced the forward looking at me, and I was like, okay, here goes. But my friend said, uh, Andy, Andy, I've got a word. Now, I grew up in the Methodist church. We didn't really have, tend to have words like this, because I've got a word from God. I'm like, uh, okay. So I passed in the microphone. And in this nightclub, these 300 people were absolutely quiet in this club as he stood up and shared this word of a girl who'd had a very medical condition, which she'd told nobody about. He knew the wallpaper colours in her room, her bedsheet colours, and that that day she had spoken to the doctor. He knew all of this as God had given him this word. And as he said these things, the entire club was completely silent, apart from one girl on the front row, who went, how the do you know that? And I've never experienced anything quite like that. I then began to preach, and this club was silent as I preached a five-minute gospel message. I came off the platform and I was surrounded by people who were desperate to know what was this weird aura around me. I was like, well, it's the Holy Spirit. Some people were so afraid of taking their sunglasses off because they, they felt we'd almost see into their souls. Like, no, 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 we can't see into your souls. But the Spirit of God moved so powerfully that night in a nightclub and I was absolutely blown away as people put their faith in Jesus. It was an incredible night. And here's the thing, that was almost 20 years ago now, and I long to see that happen more often. At the school gate, in Tesco's, as we're seeing friends, wherever it could be, I long to see a move of God that will blow our minds. The danger is that we think that God can only move powerfully in our meetings, in our church meetings, but God can move powerfully anywhere. I want to start reading Luke, Acts, uh, sorry, look at um, Acts chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. Here's a kind of moment, I guess, when God does something quite amazing. Verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. What an incredible picture of God moving powerfully in that place. People having the, the oppression of evil taken away. 
People being, being, having their, their health restored to full, full health again. People coming to know who Christ is. This amazing move of God, and it sounds pretty epic. And as I read those kind of stories, I think I want to see that happen again in my life, in my community. I want to see God do amazing and incredible things. But it's so easy to read these passages and say, yes, God, do it again. But to forget the context in which these stories come. See, the context is this. There had been a real shaking that had taken place. A shaking in the ground, a shaking for the church that allowed this moment to happen. Two years earlier, Jesus had ascended back up into heaven. And the church had been birthed on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down, equipping those early disciples. And there had been a great response. Thousands of people putting their faith in Jesus. They shared their possessions. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Things were going well, it looked. But it also wasn't always easy. In the backdrop, there was this sense of a growing persecution against God's people a growing persecution against the church. And in Acts 7, the chapter before the reading I read to you just now, two years have passed since the foundation of the church, but suddenly in this moment we see our first Christian martyr as Stephen is stoned to death. Let's pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It's easy just to kind of scan through those lines. I want to just pause in those lines for a minute. That, that, that sentence, great persecution broke out. Have you ever wondered just what that looked like? What did persecution look like in the homes of those early believers? What did it look like for their children? What did it look like for their livelihoods? How were they treated in the streets of Jerusalem? How were they treated in the marketplace? How were they treated in the temple? It's hard to imagine really what persecution looks like in that moment in time. But what is clear is that Saul was keen to destroy the church. And that word destroy has this idea behind it of, of a wild animal capturing its prey and then just going and eating and ravishing that meat as fast as it can. That Saul was intent on destroying the church. Saul goes house to house, dragging people off. That, again, very kind of a clear imaginative imagery there, people being dragged out of their homes, men and women. What happened to the kids? Dragged and put away in prison. Perhaps there was a sense of fear in Jerusalem. Who will be next? Imagine that happening here today in our context. How would we react to this? And then just imagine being one of the apostles, one of the leaders of the church at this time. You spent three years with Jesus doing some incredible things. 
And then suddenly you'd seen, as Jesus ascended back into heaven, the Spirit of God come and equip you. People were coming to faith. There were some miraculous things taking place. And sure, there had always been persecution, but somehow God had always come through. In, chapter, in Acts chapter 5, there was the miraculous escape from prison. But suddenly there is death and there is an intense persecution. Perhaps the question, where is God now? Has he left us? Perhaps they felt bad for those who had come to faith and yet suddenly were having to scatter and leave everything behind. Perhaps they were thinking, hang on a sec, this church we spent two years building overnight, it's gone. I wonder if it all seemed pretty bleak for them. I wonder even if they had doubts and questions. See, the context of this move of God in Samaria is that there had been a shaking that had taken place, a serious shaking. Christianity was no longer a comfortable thing. Everything had shifted up a gear. And sandwiched between verse 1 and verse 3 is this statement that's really easy to miss about godly men burying Stephen. It's interesting, Stephen preaches this absolute blinder before he's stoned to death and nobody responds. But there was something so powerful about his death as he had complete peace, looking up to heaven and seeing Jesus at the right-hand side of the Father, that even as he was dying, he had a sense of peace that was so profound that it impacted those who were standing by watching. For sure, it impacted Saul, who later on becomes Paul. But actually, I always thought those people who, who buried him and who mourned for him were, were fellow Christians, caring for their brother who'd been killed. But as I've done some reading this week around the commentaries, it looks as if actually they were Jews who were not Christians. And they were forbidden to mourn publicly. And yet there was something so profound about Stephen's death that impacted them so deeply that they were overcome with a sense of grief that they would give this man a burial. Isn't that profound? There's something powerful about people who are willing to pay the ultimate price for the gospel. Uh, last year, I had the privilege of going to Egypt. Jimba, the old days we used to get in airplanes and fly to different places. Yeah, those old times are gone. And I um, got to go and visit a museum of the martyrs. And it was one of the most profound, I guess, moments for me in my life. I've got a picture of that museum right now. This museum had different people who had been martyred for their Christian faith in the last few years. And it had a photograph of the person they were, but it also had something in the box beneath of something they were wearing, a T-shirt or a watch or a bracelet or a necklace. So it was this picture of them, then the very physical thing that almost showed me they were just like me. And yet they had been willing to give up their life for the gospel. The most powerful thing was this image now you see on the screen of 2015, when in Libya, 21 Christians were martyred by ISIS for their faith. They weren't priests. They were ordinary people, often kind of builders doing kind of work on different contract sites, and they'd been captured. And they could have escaped. They were allowed to go home if they just rejected the Christian faith, but they would not. And there on that beach in Libya, they were executed. And globally, those images were flashed upon our screen. 
in the Middle East, when you go to a Bible college there, you're taught how to plant a church, but you're also taught the importance of being a martyr because it's so real that you might lose your life as you share and communicate the gospel message. You might be thinking, Andy, why are you sharing this this morning? What's this got to do with where we are right now? Well, I believe there's a shaking that took place when Stephen was killed. There was a moment when things shifted decisively. It was difficult. It was brutal. It was painful. It was dark. It was uncomfortable. It was confusing. And yet in this moment, something began to happen. And I wonder if right now what we are living through is also a moment when God could be doing something incredible. We're not persecuted in this way today. But the COVID situation is having a huge impact upon how we do life, upon health, upon economy, upon our mental health, upon our children, upon how we grieve, and especially perhaps upon how we do church. There is a shaking that is taking place. And I don't believe that God willed or caused the persecution back then, almost 2,000 years ago. And I don't believe that God has caused the coronavirus that he wants us to suffer in this way. But I do believe that God can use really challenging circumstances to do something beautiful. And I wonder if he's doing something in our midst right now. And the danger is that we miss it. We miss what God is doing. When everything is fine, we can just coast on life. But when there is a crisis, we can be shaken out of our comfortable lives and we can begin to see what really matters. In the early church, Acts 1 to 6, those first two years of the church being birthed, I wonder if in some ways perhaps the church had become comfortable. Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8 told them to look beyond Jerusalem. They were to take the gospel to, to, to Judea, to Samaria and the whole world. And yet they had failed to do that. For two years they had stayed put in Jerusalem. I get it. Perhaps they were comfortable. And you know, in some ways I like being comfortable. I like praying comfy prayers that I know God can kind of answer. I like being comfortable and sharing my faith when it feels appropriate and the right time rather than at some times when God's provoking me to do it in an uncomfortable circumstance. The deal is that often we can choose to live comfortable lives. Where have we become too comfortable? The church was told to go to Samaria. And I can understand why they didn't want to go to Samaria. I mean, the Jewish people, they hated the Samaritans. They were brought up to hate the Samaritans. And yet, Jesus had called them to go and take this gospel message into Samaria. He modeled it with a woman at the well when he kind of shared the gospel message with her. And yet, they almost had an excuse of why not to go, but they had become comfortable in that moment. It's during really difficult times that they rediscovered this call to take the gospel out to the nations, to go into all the world. During these difficult times, what is it, what is the thing that perhaps we have missed that we need to rediscover? 
What are the things of Jesus that perhaps we become very comfortable with, which we need to rediscover afresh in our lives here today? We might miss being at church together, but maybe we can rediscover how we have to nurture our own faith at home as well. Maybe we're missing kids' church. Doing it over Zoom is not the same. But perhaps as parents, we're rediscovering how we disciple our children. We might miss uh, bringing our unchurched friends into this kind of a setting or into the right kind of place, the right kind of event. But maybe in this time, God is calling us to work out how we can articulate the gospel message for them directly. For me, there are two things that I think I'm really rediscovering. The first is this. I'm discovering what it means to be really desperate for things to change. I want things to change. And second of all, I'm discovering what it means to pray for things to be different. I hosted a prayer meeting uh, last Friday, I think it was. Um, hundreds of people online praying across London, hosted it from my lounge. It was the most chaotic evening ever because that evening our internet decided to try and die. So kind of, it kept kind of dropping out throughout the evening. It was incredibly awkward, incredibly embarrassing. But during that evening, we had different guests to help us pray for different things. We had somebody who works at the NHS, a kind of top-level nurse. She talked about the shortfall of 40,000 frontline staff, and we prayed into that. We prayed for protection for those who are nurses and doctors. We prayed for wisdom. We prayed that the strain wouldn't be too great. But we also knew these prayers weren't enough. And we ended up praying for a move of God in our healthcare system. We had someone share from the government, somebody who works in Westminster. We prayed for a greater unity amongst the parties. We prayed for, for wisdom as they work out strategies. We prayed for compassion on the poor and the marginalised at this time. But we also realised these prayers weren't quite enough. We ended up praying for a move of God. We prayed for schools. We had a teacher on the call. We prayed for teachers. We prayed for mental health in our, in our schools. We prayed for stress for young people over exams. We prayed for the right resources to try and teach and to help our kids stay safe. But we also realised these prayers aren't enough. We ended up praying for a move of God. You know what? If a vaccine is available tomorrow and we rid ourselves of COVID, things will still not be perfect. We still need a move of God. I've become so aware, no matter what happens in the world, we need to see God move powerfully. And this shaking that we are experiencing right now gives us an opportunity, I believe, to really call out to God, to expect a fresh move of God in this time. Verse 4 says this, Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It might have looked like the end of the church in Jerusalem. Everyone is scarpered apart from the apostles. But actually, this was the time when the church was about to bloom, to go international. Today, many of our buildings are empty. It looks like everyone has scarpered. And yet, could it be that the church is about to bloom? Maybe our church buildings aren't big enough to hold what God is going to do. The word preached in that context, you might get this idea of somebody preaching on a street corner with a megaphone, but really that isn't what it's trying to communicate in verse 4. It's trying to say that actually they began to share the good news as they did life. And what's interesting is that what had been sown into them by those apostles was so 
powerful that no matter what context they found themselves in, they were able to share and communicate the Christian faith. They were able to build community. They were able to plant churches. What if in this moment we rediscover that God wants to move in our midst? In this passage, we get the wide shot of everybody sharing their faith as they are scattered across the world. But we also get this kind of tight angle in verse 5 to 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. We get that moment of God moving powerfully, but it comes in the context of everything being shaken. What's interesting is that Stephen and Philip were two of seven men who had been chosen by the early church to really help serve the church practically. They were known for being people full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Stephen, in chapter 7, is martyred. But Philip ends up in Samaria. Very different stories. But both of them had done one thing. They had both surrendered their lives to Jesus. Stephen, as he was pelted with stones, had the sense of God's peace, having surrendered everything over to him. And Philip, as he moves into the neighborhood of people who were not like him, the Samaritans were often despised, and yet to them he gets to present the gospel with words and with wonders. And there was great joy in that city. I want to be honest with you. The Christian life is not easy. When we surrender our lives to God, it isn't all plain sailing. I love the idea that we have to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. It's often difficult at times that perhaps it's like seeing our life on two tracks, like a train on the train track. One of those tracks is that we have a sense of the blessings of God. We have a sense of God's provision. We have a sense of his joy and of his peace. But on the other track, there's also a sense there will always be challenges. There will always be difficulties. There will always be struggles. And there will often be discomfort as we surrender our lives to the gospel. We run on these two tracks, the Christian life. But my question for you this morning is this, is are you up for it? Do we believe that God could be doing something in these times? These very difficult, hurting, broken times. Could God be doing a new thing? Will we surrender to God afresh? Whether like Stephen, we become martyrs, like Philip, we are using some different circumstance to communicate through words and through wonders. I want to finish this morning by praying. And what I really felt was right to do was for me just to get on my knees to pray. I'd like to encourage you to do two things at home. If you've got your shoes on or your slippers on, perhaps you can take off your shoes. The shoes in the Bible are a symbol of your rights. But right now, this morning, I'm saying I'm taking off my shoes because I'm taking off my rights. I'm letting go of my rights before God. And I get on my knees as a symbolic act of saying that I surrender afresh to God today. If right now at home you want to do this, I'd encourage you to get on your knees right now as a symbolic act before God.
say we let go of our rights, we surrender our lives afresh. That we want to see God move powerfully in this time. If you're up for it, let's kneel down and let me pray. Father God, it's so easy to have our lives dictated to by what we see in the news headlines. But we know that when things get shaken up, that often you are at work. Father God, you're at work in this city right now. You're at work in our community right now. You're at work in our lives right now. Father God, in this moment, we surrender our lives afresh to you. Like Stephen and Philip, would you right now fill us afresh with your spirit? We are aware that we can't live this Christian life without your spirit at work in our lives. We welcome your spirit right now. Holy Spirit, bring your peace. Bring your joy. And God, give us your wisdom, we pray as well. And then God, I asked you to make us less comfortable. I surrender my life to you, God, so I say, my life is yours. What is it you have in store for me to do even today, even this week? Right now, in this moment, I'm quiet. Father God, would you put in our hearts or our minds just somebody that we should be speaking to about your love this week? Would you put in our minds somebody who really needs to know your hope this week? Father, we ask, God, that in the, the days ahead, you'd give us a real sensitivity to your spirit. That we might know your prompts. Those moments when you're calling us to say something or to do something or to generously give something. Would we not live lives of comfort, but lives of obedience before you? Holy Spirit, we surrender our lives. Take them and use them for your purposes, we pray. And we do all this in response to Jesus, to all that he's done for us. His love, his grace, his mercy, his truth. That because you have set us free, we are involved in what you are doing in setting others free, in sharing your good news, in caring for those who are marginalised and lost and hopeless right now. So, Spirit of God, would you use us this week to begin to see your scattered church doing something wonderful in these times, doing something wonderful in these days. We give you all the glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.